You're listening to From Beyond, the monthly film podcast where we discuss Lovecraftian and Lovecraft-adjacent movies, old and new, through the lens of weird fiction and cosmic horror. My name is Mike Contos, and your co-host is Keith Warholic. Today we are discussing the 2019 film The Color Out of Space, directed by Richard Stanley and starring Nicolas Cage. The film is, of course, based on the H.P. Lovecraft short story of the same name. First appearing in the September 1927 edition of science fiction magazine Amazing Stories, The Color Out of Space was Lovecraft's favorite of all his short stories, and has a reputation as one of his most unsettling and disturbing pieces of writing. It has been speculated that Lovecraft was influenced to write this story by the Radium Girls scandal, where female workers contracted radiation poisoning after being exposed to radium at their factory jobs. The effects of the eponymous color in the story are very reminiscent of radiation, as it causes plants to eerily glow and disfigures the inhabitants of a farm as they die a slow and agonizing death. Lovecraft was dismayed at the all-too-human depiction of aliens in other works of fiction, and his goal for the story was to create an entity that was truly alien. He was fascinated by the idea that human vision is restricted to the relatively small range of values within the visible light spectrum, and imagined that there were entities that existed outside of human perception, as he had previously done in the short story From Beyond. The Color Out of Space has been adapted to film several times, and inspired Stephen King's 1987 novel, The Tommyknockers, along with countless other horror novels and films. H.P. Lovecraft stories are now public domain and available to read freely for anyone with an internet connection. And we've supplied a link in the show notes where you can read the color out of space. With that out of our way, we begin our journey into vistas from beyond. The trouble begins when a meteorite crashes on the Gardner family's farm. Local scientists are mystified by the meteorite, and the mystery only deepens when the meteorite disappears after a thunderstorm, having been struck by lightning several times. In the wake of the meteor's destruction, an indescribable color has begun to spread, altering local animals in unusual ways and causing the gardener's crops to grow unnaturally large and become slightly luminous in the dark. The Gardner family begins to lose their sanity as they succumb to the otherworldly entity. Isolated from the outside world, they begin to die one by one. When men come to the farm to investigate, the color begins to cover everything in the vicinity. The men flee in terror, only to turn and witness the color fly back up into space. However, one of the men notices a small piece of the color fall back to the ground and the knowledge that part of the alien still resides on Earth is sufficient to disturb his mental state for the rest of his natural life. Yeah, so this is pretty cool that we are talking about a theatrically released direct adaptation of a Lovecraft story. Um, That's not something that happens very often. Apparently, this is the first of three movies that this director wants to make. Yeah, so Richard Stanley has... I think it's been confirmed that the Dunwich Horror is now a greenlit project. That's a good sign, and I'm looking forward to more of them, for sure. I, I feel like the Dunwich Horror is, like, the second most unfilmable 
Lovecraft story. The Color Out of Space is probably the first most unfilmable Lovecraft story. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's a couple adaptations out there. Uh, this is not the first one. Obviously, a, a color that doesn't exist has to turn into a color that does exist. Um, so, so I know we both have, had read this story in the past. Um, what were your thoughts and expectations and, and predictions about what you were going to get out of a, uh, a film adaptation of this story? The Color Out of Space was actually the first H.P. Lovecraft story that I ever read. I think it was probably a pretty perfect entry point into his stories for me. Something different than the horror that I had consumed up to that point. And I read it at like two o'clock in the morning or something stupid. The first time reading it was like a fairly perfect setting as well because I lived out of town at the time. Dude, that was a very scary house that you lived in. <laughs> Honestly, it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and I was like 20 years old. I thought this is going to be a really hard story to adapt for a couple reasons. Like many of Lovecraft's stories, it's relatively short and light on the plot and heavy on atmosphere. To read The Color Out of Space is probably half an hour or 45 minutes, depending on how fast you read. So obviously, to be a feature-length movie, the story is going to need a lot of filling in. The characters are either undeveloped completely, or they're, they're barely developed at all. So obviously, the movie was going to have to add flavor to the characters. This story, it kind of stands out to me, because in a lot of the Lovecraft stories he ends up giving like a lot of kind of gory details and uh, a big final explanation about what's happening. Like if you think about the end of a story, like the mountains of madness, I, he fully explains everything. And in this story, he really explains nothing. It's a lot more like an Edgar Allan Poe story where it's, it's very suggestive, but you never find anything out about the color out of space. Nowhere in the story does he name drop any of the big myth mythos cre creatures like Yog Sothoth or Cthulhu or anything like that. So I, I think the subdued nature of, of the story is something that makes it a lot more scary than many Lovecraft stories. So I was I was ready for the movie to definitely be a little bit different than the story. I I guess I was just hoping that the way that they would build on it would be something that was consistent with the tone of the story. I, I knew that a feature length movie and a, and a Lovecraft movie, I think most directors are gonna be approaching that thinking of a way they can get a couple cool monsters into the movie, which he, he put some monsters in there. Well, I think you're right about that tendency to uh, if you're adapting a Lovecraft story, you really want to deliver on the things that people think of when they think of Lovecraft, like the tentacles and the monsters. I've read the Guillermo del Toro script for Mountains of Madness, and it seemed like they really did something similar there where it was just kind of like a theme park mo ride of monsters, whereas like the story is a lot more pulled back, like there's barely any action. There's a big penguin they see a dead monster and they almost see a Shoggoth at the end. But <laughs> I, the movie was just chock full of monsters. I, I didn't feel like they went that crazy with this one. Um, but they definitely, they punch up the action a little bit from what is, is happening in the story. I was certainly in no way surprised that they upscaled it a little bit because the, the short story doesn't really leave you with a whole lot 
to look at that way. The overall theme of the short story, I think, is really it's more about decay and death. Like everything that happens on the farm in the in the short story happens very slowly. Like it talks about the changing of the seasons. Like they gradually notice that there's something wrong with the animals. They gradually notice that the fruit is weird. You know, his wife and his kids like gradually fall apart and turn into ash. Like the dread in the story is a lot more of a long game, I guess. Before we get into kind of the details of the story, I wanted us to both go over kind of like the uh, the positive aspects of the film, the most positive aspects. I really like the intro and the outro of the movie. I thought they established a great atmosphere. The intro and the outro are basically like the words of Lovecraft verbatim from the story, I believe. Some nice long establishing shots. When that intro happened, I was I I sort of was expecting a vibe, uh, which the rest of the movie did not maintain. That was sort of uh, more noirish and more slow paced, kind of like a, a true detective sort of thing. It opens up basically word for word with the story's intro, and it also ends pretty much word for word with uh, with the story's ending. I think the movie did a great job with kind of the framing introduction uh, that felt pretty spot on with the story. Yeah. I thought they did a great job with the setting. Uh, you don't you don't really see much in town. It's just about all on the farm. The fact that they're living on this small farm in this kind of small town area that seems a little far out from everything, I, I thought it was pretty good that way. Yeah, and I mean, the basic plot is definitely the same. You know, a meteor crashes on the farm. People come to investigate it. It gets into the news. It kind of has an impact on the sanity and health of the family and their crops and animals. Uh, and, you know, ultimately leads to the end of everyone who lives on the property. Um, you know, it's all the story beats are there. As soon as the movie started, I thought the music was amazing. Um, the soundtrack is by Colin Stetson, uh, who is the composer of Hereditary, which is another incredible uh, soundtrack, horror soundtrack. And uh, yeah, I just, I love the eerie electronic soundscape. I thought it was very melancholy and atmospheric, very fitting to to the story. Yeah, the, the soundtrack definitely stands out. I think it definitely makes some of the scenes. So something I really appreciated about this movie was that it was set in the present day. Something I really don't like about a lot of Lovecraftian films, games, stories, is that sort of this Victorian era noir-ish, sometimes steampunk aesthetic has become associated with Lovecraft. And that is not what Lovecraft is about. Like when Lovecraft was writing these stories, with, with a few exceptions, he was writing stories that happened at the same time as he was alive like i mean lovecraft was a big fan of science like he used to go and see lectures by you know other physicists and biologists that were alive at the same time as 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 he was and uh, actually at the beginning of color out of space when he talks about the scientists who analyze the rock uh, he goes into quite a bit of detail about real scientific processes that people used to use to analyze materials. So I, I appreciated that this movie was set in modern times and didn't try and do that uh, Victorian noirish Lovecraft thing. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I don't have an issue with a movie being set when when the story was written, but I agree with you, there's kind of a weird aesthetic that doesn't really make sense to me or work for me that's just been associated with anything Lovecraft-related, like all the board games and stuff kind of do it. Yeah, I was going to say and, the board And sometimes games. it's fine, but... It's not what the story is about, and I mean you're right. He was he was writing science fiction stories for the most part. Most of them are like reasonably hard science fiction for his time. He he was writing about current science and current uh, current things that were going on. There's that Arthur C. Clarke quote about any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I don't think the supernatural exists at all in Lovecraft stories. I think he's like a hardcore materialist. Um, but he's talking about these entities and this science and like in the color out of space, there's even the implication that the color is may not even be from this universe. Like it might be from another dimension or from some void that is completely inaccessible to uh, science at this point. Like, uh, there's a passage in the story where he wonders if the color even came from somewhere, came from the voids that astronomers can see with their telescopes. So, uh, you know, there's nothing supernatural about this story. It's like, it's very, uh, it's very much science fiction. It's not, it's not fantasy. Yeah, and I, I think that's true for most of his stories. I, I, there's certainly some that are supernatural. But, I, yeah, most of them, he's going off of a scientific theory or concept and running with it, right? Kind of, where where could this go? I think if they were going to do this movie as a period piece, if they had done something like The Witch, which was, like, super serious and not, like, a hammy old-time thing, I, I bet that could have been good. I would watch that version yeah. of Color Out of oh, Space. Yeah. yeah, it could be fine. It's just there's, like, a caricature kind of thing that people have in their mind that is sometimes off-putting to me or like uh, the kind of that steampunk thing you mentioned it's like uh, it's kind of cringe bro <laughs> bro no no monocles in lovecraft monocle free lovecraft <laughs> to move into the uh this is some of the similarities and differences for the characters the color of space is not a character driven story so obviously some of these characters have been fleshed out a little bit for the screen so in the short story, The Color Art of Space, uh, it is told in first person by an unnamed narrator who is a surveyor. Um, in the film, this becomes the character Ward Phillips. And of course, Ward is a famous family in the Lovecraftian mythos. Charles Dexter Ward is the most famous member of that family. And of course, Phillips is an homage to Lovecraft's name. Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Yeah, and this yeah. this character is a he's a hydrologist in this movie, and he's surveying the water table and planning for a hydroelectric electric dam that eventually floods the valley where the film's events take place. Yeah, that was the same in the story though. With I don't know if they state his specific profession other than a surveyor, but he's there for the future reservoir, which would be the same type of deal. The film just kind of has an updated version of it for the 21st century, I think. Because he's a hydrologist, when it gets to the point of researching this thing that's appeared, it's through a water test in the movie instead of, uh, in the story, they, 
they chip off several pieces of it and bring it back to the university to study it in the labs there. Yeah. I, I think it was probably just to keep the character count down that they didn't have the university people. Kind of, I'm, I guess he, he's wearing a Miskatonic University shirt in the movie. Ward Phillips in the film is from Miskatonic University, as far as I can tell. He replaces that whole scenario. It makes sense that they did it that way, but I kind of wondered why they didn't have someone examine this weird space rock. Because it seems like something people might want to look at if it has weird properties that no one's ever noticed or seen in, seen in life before. Next up, we have Nathan Gardner, who is the patriarch of the uh, family and a, and a farmer. He owns the land that this story takes place on. And in the original story, his name is Nahum Gardner. So they updated that to Nathan. Yes. And in the movie, <laughs> played by Canada's own national treasure, Nicolas Cage. Yeah, his story beats are pretty much the same in the movie as they are in the short story. And, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But this is the one character, I think, in the short story that is sort of fleshed out. We see the most of him. So they pretty much kept him the same in the film. In the story, I think he just kind of learns to live with what's going on and ends up not really thinking a whole lot about what's going on. And I think they, they actually were pretty faithful to that in the movie. They, they kind of make an interesting dynamic where the, the kids are actually noticing that something is strange. Yes. And if a few of them actually do try to escape the farm, which is uh, kind of, again, a difference from the story. But, um, yeah, they, they keep Nathan Gardner as the one character who consistently acts like nothing weird or nothing that strange is going on. He's always willing to do like willing to accept these ridiculous things that are happening and maybe not think about them a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, usually to comical effect. There's a lot of comedy with Nicolas Cage's uh, performance in this film. I thought it was pretty funny the way they did. Like in the story, the Arkham newspaper puts out some kind of things making fun of this guy who thinks there's this alien rock on his property. or They, they think he's just kind of an attention seeker or whatever. I thought the movie did a really good job of doing that on like network television news. The scene where Nicolas Cage's character sees himself on the news is hilarious. Yeah, that, that whole bit was like perfect. Yeah. <laughs> It was very funny. <laughs> UFO contactee and whiskey connoisseur, Nathan Gardner. <laughs> yeah, that, it's good when they add the little... They ask him if he was sober or whatever, and all of a sudden they add an additional kind of piece of expertise to his... <laughs> that was good. You know, one thing I appreciated about this movie was the re relationship that the uh, film establishes early on between Nathan Gardner and his wife, Teresa. Um, I thought that was quite strong in the opening act of the film. Uh, the movie gives his wife, Teresa, a backstory where she had been battling cancer and had a mastectomy. She's like struggling with feelings of being unattractive. And I thought that they made the relationship between Nathan and his wife Teresa quite touching and knowing what happens in the story I thought oh this is going to be like really heartrending later on 
And I felt like that was undermined by Nicolas Cage's uh, performance. And, and I guess probably that was a decision of the director to get him to be really hammy. Yeah, I think it was definitely a directed decision to do that. So in the story, The Color Out of Space, we have the unnamed narrator talk to Ami Pierce, who's this old crazy man who lives close to the property that the Gardner family used to live on. And Ami Pierce tells the unnamed narrator that Nathan or Nahum Gardner in the story uh, locked his wife in the attic as uh, the color kind of took hold and disintegrated her. Ami Pierce relays the fact that he actually went up to the attic and he saw Nahum's wife still alive, still in some living state and she was suffering and so he killed her and i thought it was a good narrative choice in the movie to have nathan Teresa's husband be the one who kills her but i i think that they kind of they undermined it at at that moment i would have preferred that it that was not funny <laughs> it's definitely not funny in the story as i was kind of predicting that nicholas cage would be the one to kill his wife and, and it would be this kind of emotional scene it was so close to being that and then he he kind of changes his mind and walks out and then when it does happen later it's a it's a funny scene but i think they should have just kept that that serious scene going because like people were actually gasping around me and like oh my god when he puts the shotgun up to his wife's head I wish it hadn't been played for laughs because I, I thought that the, the his relationship with his wife was set up so well that... There, there's certainly moments that could have been less comedic, I think. Although, after he shoots his wife, he then puts the gun to the his child's head who is, has been fused onto his mother with when the color strikes them. And he does shoot his son, and I think that that moment has a little more weight to it. But, I mean, all in all, the scene is definitely still a little goofy. I don't think it's a bad scene. It's just it's not the decision I would have made on it. In the short story, Nahum Gardner locks his son Thaddeus into one room in the attic, and he locks his wife into another one. In the film, they made uh, what I think is a good decision to not only have him lock his son and his wife into the same room in the attic, but to actually have them be fused together by the color, uh, which gave them a good opportunity to create kind of a, a horrific four-limbed monster that looked like something out of the thing. And also, I mean, it's the uh, in the film, the mother is, is literally absorbing her young son. He sort of becomes like a, a weird cancerous tumor on her, which I thought was like extra horrific given the the backstory that they gave her. Yeah, I actually didn't really didn't really make that connection, but that's that's a good mention. And I, I think that the fusion that happens where they they end up merging together is is one of the stronger parts with the the weird creatures, despite being not in the story. I thought it was a really good use of effects, and it I mean it looks pretty gross. Like it's it's quite well done. When you see them next to people, it looks pretty authentic to me. When you get the close-ups on them, it's kind of disgusting. Yeah, I thought it was it was definitely really effective body horror. It was a scary monster. I enjoyed that part of the movie, but I I did feel 
that it was a, a departure from the tone of the story where kind of death slowly sets in the people and the animals on the farm slowly turn to ash and fall apart and kind of replaced it with more of an in-your-face uh, John Carpenter's The Thing style horror and I don't hate that but I, I think it was a difference I did think the transition from when they're first hit by the color as they're, I think they're running back to the house and it hits them. Right. I thought just the the transition from when they first uh, are kind of merged together up until the attic scene before they fully become a monster. I thought that was like well done and it, it is kind of a gradual change for a while. And then suddenly it's kind of snap of the finger. They're this whatever six-legged or what bunch of legged spider monster which it, it was it was a it was a cool monster but i i agree with you it it felt a little bit blunt force and kind of what we were saying before of i think directors do feel forced to put something strange like a monster like that in that's somewhat recognizable but in another way, it felt like it was an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's story doing an homage to an almost adaptation of an H.P. Lovecraft story with John Carpenter's The Thing, which uh, really both of the monsters are. And I, I guess that's not an issue. There, There's just something a little bit weird about that dynamic, I guess. It kind of left me scratching my head the first member of the gardener family that we see in this film is lavinia uh, she is a witch and she's standing on a lakeside trying to perform a spell to cure her mother of cancer this was a weird character for me she's a witch and uh she has the necronomicon which was a really crazy choice to me i get the witch connection with hp lovecraft like obviously you know he he wrote a book or a story called Dreams in the Witch House that takes place in Salem at a house that is still standing. I've been there, actually. But when he talks about witchcraft in his stories, he's coming from a materialist perspective of the universe. So the witches aren't consorting with Satan. They don't have magical powers. What they're doing is they're tapping into these entities from other dimensions or from outer space. Like in Dreams from the Witch House... Um, the witch is literally creating interdimensional portholes using like geometry and math. Well, so like it is through his dreams, right? She sends him to another plane of existence almost while he's dreaming yeah. in that story. But they're not traditional yeah. witches. So I, no, I thought it was sort of strange to have like, uh, you know, in the Lovecraft universe, the Necronomicon is this like arcane tome that nobody has. Mm -hmm. It was very strange that like a 12 year old would have a copy of the Necronomicon. I was the same way with her being a witch as I was with the Necronomicon. I think I own that exact book. It's, it's a real thing that a fan wrote and was published in the 70s. I think 1977 it was published. Yeah. Um, I own a second edition of it that I, I only bought a few years ago. Just I found it in, in chapters. I think, I don't know if it was in the occult section, which is kind of funny. Just as kind of a fun nod to that, I didn't mind it. 
But I do agree with you. It, it kind of made the Necronomicon dumb as far as being in the this movie universe. Like, oh, yeah, teenage girls buy it and cast spells with it. Even though there's there's nothing in the movie that says her spells are working, it it felt kind of kind of cheap, a little too fan servicey for me. I think the whole witch thing just sort of felt a little cringy to me. It felt like an episode mm-hmm. of like that's so Raven, or I, it literally <laughs> felt like a a family sitcom. I, it was very weird. Either she thinks she's a witch, and she's not. She's just a, a teenager playing around. Uh, she's a witch and she's using magic and magic does not exist in Lovecraft's universe or she is in contact with interdimensional uh, cosmic entities and that is crazy and if that's the case it has no impact on the story and it's like why if they had if they played it up that way it could have been really cool I think they should have done that if it was going to be in there, it needed to be the third option. Yeah. Yeah, I think that could have been an interesting take on it. To do it more more faithful to, I guess, witches in the Lovecraft literature. There's a scene near the... Kind of when things are really reaching uh, the peak of insanity. She ends up carving her body up with all these kind of mystical symbols. Yes. Do you remember? Does anything come of that, or I, is she? No, I, I don't think so. She just ends up walking into the living room bleeding, and they they're kind of oh, what what's ha- what happened to you, right? Yeah, and so. that was strange because obviously, I mean, that that is a a disturbing scene to have in the film. Like we have someone who is a a child or like like a young teenager in the film uh, doing magic where they cut themselves apart, and it's like. Is there a reason for this to happen? Like, is she calling some sort of elder gods? It does. I mean, there is no payoff to her being a witch and her cutting herself up. It's. It seems very extraneous to the story. Let's move on to one of the last, I think, significant characters to talk about, which is Ezra, played by Tommy Chong. Yeah. So in the short story, The Color Out of Space... Ami Pierce is the old man who relays the events on the gardener's farm to the unnamed narrator. And in the film, Ami Pierce's character is replaced by a character named Ezra, and he is squatting on the gardener's property. I guess he's not necessarily replacing Ami Pierce, but there's certainly the most similarities between him and Ami Pierce. Yeah. He's partially a new creation and definitely shares a lot of traits. I felt like, to me, this was really kind of where the movie tonally went off the rails. uh, Because in addition to Tommy Chong's character, Ezra, who of course is a, a stoner and smokes a lot of weed... Nathan Gardner's uh, middle child, Benny, he is, is also a stoner. He smokes weed with Ezra. And I feel like the the tone of the humor here really seemed like like a, a stoner movie, like Cheech and Chong. Yeah, it just, it didn't go with the rest of the movie for me. I, I, I didn't like the, the tonal shift when uh, these two characters were on the screen. I, I, it didn't really bother me, but he's an actor who's going to bring a certain crowd to the movie. Yeah. So maybe maybe it makes sense just to have him in the movie for that reason. There is a scene near the end with the character Ezra 
that I thought was pretty neat and pretty well thought out. Eventually, when things have really gone haywire, Ward ends up going into his hut. He's kind of started to decay into something inhuman. It's kind of like he's been possessed by the color at this point. Like, he's, he's not really himself anymore. But he ends up giving, I guess, the missing exposition about the color from the story. Because in the story, Ami Pierce talks about how the, the gardener said it was like this thing that uh, sucked the life out of you and burned you, I think. And uh, when Ward goes into the cabin, Tommy Chong is kind of there in this trance state, and he's kind of saying these exact things about it, it, sucks, it sucks your life and it, it burns you. And I thought that was a cool way to put that in, because like, how, how else do you really do that? Um, you know, Lovecraft, the conception of what a Lovecraft story is has kind of been tied in with like, you know, like psychedelic 70s stuff, stoner culture and, you know, tentacles. And so people are expecting all these elements and they want something like really campy. But if you forget all the things that you know about Lovecraft and you just read the story, The Color Out of Space, it is a, a very serious kind of slow burn and a lot of these elements just really take away from the story, I think, and, and turn it into something that it is not. Yeah, one thing that immediately struck me is like, okay, after this intro that was really spot on and I it actually set a good mood, it's like, okay, never mind, we're watching a horror comedy. Yeah. And I think despite loving the Stuart Gordon movies, I mean, like Dagon is one of my favorite Lovecraft adaptations. Agreed. There's something, I think Stuart Gordon really set a preconception of what H.P. Lovecraft adaptations are. Yeah, it's a hokey like midnight it, movie. His movies are very campy and I enjoy them and I, like, I enjoy the campiness of them as well. Yeah. But I, not every H.P. Lovecraft movie needs to be that for me. And I wish that some of them weren't. So on one hand, I really do love Stuart Gordon. And I think his movies are pretty fun and pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. But I, sometimes I wish that he had, like, maybe I'm wrong on accusing him of being the guy who started that. But I think he was probably a big influence on it. No, I agree with you entirely. I think like this sort of slapstick, like overacting that we see in the color out of space is, is straight out of those Stuart Gordon movies. And uh, I think that a lot of the time, if we're looking for something that really has that cosmic horror vibe to it, we have to look at movies that are not based on Lovecraft because then there's a chance that they can take themselves seriously and explore these themes with the gravity that Lovecraft was trying to ex explore them with. You know, I just yeah. watched Under the Skin. I think, you know, not my favorite movie in the world, but I think it, 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 it explored some very cosmic themes in a very serious way. Like, there's nothing funny about that movie. And there's a lot yeah. of existential dread in there. I think True Detective Season 1 is another great example of how you can do cosmic horror and have it be really serious like yeah that was the first thing that popped into my mind when you were talking about this was true detective season one that it's it's not an adaptation it, it there's a bit of plagiarism in there of of yes another author uh it's Ligotti, right yeah they plagiarize uh thomas Ligotti. there's a passage 
in the beginning in the first episode of true detective from conspiracy against the human race and something from a passage from the beginning of a, a short story that he wrote called the frolic which is probably his best known short story yeah true detective great lovecraft Let's move on to the special effects. The first thing anyone who's read the Color Out of Space story is going to think as soon as a movie adaptation is announced is how are they going to portray a color that does not exist? Keith, how successful did you think they were in portraying that? To, to get a little bit off topic, uh, in the book, The Neverending Story, there's the nothing that's consuming the land which is described as just a void. When you look at it, it's literally nothing. It's it's almost indescribable in a Lovecraftian kind of way. In the in the movie adaptation of that book, they just use dark smoke, and I think that's all. You, that's kind of all you can do. I think in the in this movie, it's the same type of deal. Like they just picked a strange kind of spacey midnight movie color. This weird kind of purple for the most part. And that's what they go with. Yeah, the 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 color basically is just purple. It sort of has a kaleidoscope effect to it. Another recent science fiction film, Annihilation, sort of had a similar effect. It's not based on the color out of space, but it has a lot of similarities to the color out of space. At the beginning of that film, a meteor strikes a lighthouse and sort of a an oily, multicolored, prismatic kind of fluid floats through the air. I, I felt like this effect was pretty similar. I think that movie actually maybe had a better job of doing something that felt a little bit stranger just because it was more like this constantly shifting prism of colors. One thing that I wondered about the choice to make the color purple, of course, this movie was produced by the production company who did Mandy last year, which also starred Nicolas Cage and was very well received by the horror community. And that movie was all the marketing, like all the promotional material is purple. The, the, the There's a lot of purple in that movie. It looks like it has a very like neon 80s look. I was sort of wondering yeah. if they chose that aesthetic for for this movie based on the success of that movie. Like, oh, here's another movie with Nicolas Cage from this production purple. company that did Mandy. <laughs> it, it's kind of the same color scheme. I mean, I walked into this yeah. sort of wondering if I was going to see something similar to Mandy. And as soon as the, the mm-hmm. soundtrack started up, I was like, oh, shit, this is really going to be the vibe. But then yeah. it sort of turned into something really goofy. It's tough to not have Mandy in your mind walking into a Nicolas Cage horror movie that comes out, what, a year later? One thing I thought was weird was the youngest son kind of being the most affected, and he, they find him outside several times. And the one time he, they find him outside at night, and he's sitting there kind of looking towards the well, and they ask him what he's doing, and he says, well, it's talking to me, or he's talking to me. And they say, who? And they, he says, the man in the well. And I was like, all right. Uh, <laughs> This is, I don't know, it just felt like something out of The Conjuring. And I don't i don't even hate The Conjuring or dislike it, but it just felt like some James Wan cinematic universe kind of bullshit. 
Honestly, I thought that was sort of creepy. I can buy that, you know, a, a small child doesn't know how to interpret this cosmic interaction that he's having with some unknown entity, some like gaseous entity or whatever. It's probably not as bad as I just made it out to be. I think it's just been done so many times that basically that same line has been done so many times. I wanted, I felt like groaning. Something I noticed about the portrayal of the color in this movie is that in the short story, The Color Out of Space, the color is not personified at all. It's literally just a color. Um, in this movie, we actually see the color sort of take on a form and a shape a couple times. And uh, of course, it has tentacles. <laughs> that was an interesting divergence from its portrayal in the, in the story. What did you think of some of the other monsters? In the story, uh, Nahum Gardner has a barn full of horses. There's a point where they they get spooked by this everything that's going on. As things are getting weirder and weirder, at some point they freak out and kind of stampede off. In the movie adaptation, the, the horses <laughs> are replaced with what Nicolas Cage calls the animal of the future, uh, which is alpacas. And boy, <laughs> do they really milk that one? Like every five minutes, there's an alpaca punchline. Some of them worked. They definitely get old. Eventually, rather than horses stampeding off, I think the sun goes to feed them in the barn and they've turned into the dog monster from the thing. Yes, the alpacas have been fused together, the entire herd. And uh, kind of in the same way that the color has fused Teresa Gardner and her young son together, all the alpacas are now one giant screaming entity in the barn. It's kind of cool that it's this weird, shapeless, like almost indescribable monster. But I can also describe it as the dog monster from The Thing. Yeah, it was straight and out of The Thing, yeah. The alpaca jokes had, had just gotten sour for me by that point. Yeah, I, you know, another moment that was played for laughs and really could have been something horrific. But uh, I, I, I didn't dislike the monster design in this scene. I, I honestly thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was pretty gory and gross when Nicolas Cage is blowing all their heads off with a shotgun. But uh, yeah, I mean, it just again, a moment that should have been horrifying and it was, it was played for laughs. All right, so before we get to our final thoughts, uh, one major yes. part of the movie that I wanted to talk about is Here we go. the cosmic reveal. So close to the end of the film, Ward Phillips and Lavinia Gardner touch in front of the well as the color out of space is flowing out of it and destroying everything. And as they touch, they have a vision of the origin of the color out of space. I think the color is like kind of, is it hitting them as this is happening? Yeah, it's sort of doing an Emperor Palpatine lightning sort of thing. Yeah, the rise of Skywalker. <laughs> now, in the color out of space short story, we are given no origin for the color, aside from some vague statements about it's from outer space it's from a, a void that the telescopes of astronomers are unable to penetrate it's just completely unknown we don't ever understand it there's interesting speculation on it but it's yes. never never stated this movie in this scene gives us a vision of the origin of the color out of space 
And what we see is a hellish planet with worms and tentacle-like creatures everywhere. It was very strange because I couldn't really connect how this vista that we were seeing, which was very cool, I couldn't figure out how it was in any way connected to this gaseous color entity that was living in their well. Now, we see the color out of space kind of turn into this entity with tentacles a couple times in the movie, but the creatures that we see on this hell world are very much corporeal and physical creatures. So how is the color connected to them? That didn't make any sense to me. If the color comes from this planet, is it like a, a bioweapon? Or I don't know what it's supposed to be. If it's supposed to have something to do with these physical creatures that we catch a glimpse of. At first, I was really excited about this moment. Um, and then the more I thought about it, the more out of place in the story it seemed. And I really couldn't figure out what the filmmaker was trying to tell us with this very cool vista. I fully forgot about that scene. I was like, wait, that, oh yeah, that, that is a thing that I watched. It did happen in front of me. And I loved it when I saw it. I thought it was really cool. Visually, it looked great. It, it'd be fun to watch in slow motion because I think a lot happens in front of you and in about 10 or 15 seconds or maybe a little longer. So it'd be interesting just to see everything that's in there. But it worked for me. I, I, I get where you're coming from, though, with it feeling a little, uh, a, a bit of a reach or maybe bordering on fan service. This scene is very reminiscent of a scene that happens in another Lovecraftian film, which we will definitely talk about on the podcast, called Slither. And in Slither, there is a bunch of small leech-like kind of slugs that invade the earth and gradually turn into different types of monsters. And uh, at one point, one of these slugs bites the tongue, I believe, of, of the main character. And she sees this vision, uh, which is almost identical, honestly, to the one in The Color Out of Space. But the purpose of that scene in Slither is to show what those aliens are doing. Like they colonize worlds and we kind of see this happen. In this movie, I was not sure what purpose this was serving. And I felt like it was very derivative of Slither, but it it wasn't as cool and... Maybe maybe not as cleverly, cleverly implemented. You know, the, two other things that this brief little vision reminded me of was... Uh, Laird Baron's old leech mythos. Uh, Laird Baron is a modern weird fiction author, and he sort of has this cosmic mythology that's a little bit Lovecraftian, and the afterlife in his mythology is this hell world that is like swarming with worms and darkness. And uh, I thought of that instantly as soon as I saw this part of the movie. He honestly did come to mind for me as well. Just like, I, I haven't read a lot of his stuff. I've read most of Occultation. That's, that's pretty much it. Um, and the other thing that this scene reminded me of is the story Challenge from Beyond which was a round robin collaboration between Lovecraft, uh, Robert Howard, and a couple other authors. And that is about a character who has this item which transports him to another planet 
uh, filled with worm-like aliens, and he actually becomes the king of the worm-like aliens. That reminded me a lot of this this little moment as well. Yeah, they are. I think they're pretty clearly described. They're kind of these weird cone things with three clawed arms, and they slither around. There's some pretty funny stuff about just the the character that gets transported into one of these alien bodies trying to learn how to operate it. An extra little tidbit on that story that I read that I think is really funny. It was a common thing with these round robin stories for each author to try and stump the next one, much like the new Star Wars trilogy. (laughs) Uh, but, (laughs) But Robert E. Howard, on his part, is where it gets really ridiculous and he starts killing these aliens I think he destroys their god in the end. He just made it absolutely ridiculous for the next person who had had to write write the conclusion to it, which I I don't remember who ended the story, but it always felt funny to me reading that. We're going to move on to our final thoughts and our our verdict on this. Keith, what are your overall feelings about this? Is this, uh, would Martin Scorsese consider this movie as real film? Uh, I think you would call The Color Out of Space the cinema of the future. (laughs) Now, (laughs) this is coming off of Nicolas Cage being in Mandy, which is a movie that I really loved. And the, the Color Out of Space is a story I really love. And I think because of that, I maybe had low expectations that the movie was likely to disappoint me. I expected it to look pretty bad. Uh, and I, I figured it would be kind of minimal on the effects. So I was honestly surprised that like throughout most of the movie, there's there's something on screen at most times for some kind of weird digital effect. And a fair amount of monsters. But yeah, all in all, like... Again, I was surprised with how much is in there, how decent everything looks pretty consistently. I, I think there's a couple moments where things look iffy, but all in all, I was, I was very impressed with, a, I think, a good blend of practical with some CG. And I mean, the more, the more that I was thinking about it and preparing for this talk, I definitely thought of a fair amount that did kind of either frustrate me or there were some decisions that I thought were a little puzzling. But all in all, I did I did enjoy the movie, and I'm probably going to be buying it when it comes out. And I definitely walked out excited knowing that Richard Stanley has more Lovecraft adaptations on the way. I certainly, I don't really have, like, bad feelings about this movie. They took the route, honestly, that I thought that they were going to take, which was making a campy midnight movie that has a lot of humor in it. I think we got a movie that covers the basic plot beats, has some cool monsters that are reminiscent of Lovecraft-adjacent films, like The Thing, great soundtrack, cool special effects, cool monsters. Uh, Nicolas Cage is certainly fun to watch. Like... I don't think anybody would have walked out of this movie disappointed if they had never read The Color Out of Space. But the seriousness and the and the weightiness of the the existential dread and the cosmic horror is certainly not in this in this movie. I guess I was a little disappointed because The Color Out of Space is one of the really scary Lovecraft stories where he doesn't overexplain anything. It is truly unknown. The threat remains on earth at the end of it that's actually a thing i wanted to mention right near the end of the story ami pierce tells uh the investigators with him walking back to his home and as he's 
getting to his house, he sees these fragments of the color coming back into the earth, even though he's seen most of it fly up into space. Yes. He kind of makes some mention that just seeing that a little bit of that had stayed in stayed in the ground and was still nearby kind of forever altered his, his sanity. I wish they'd had that moment in the movie of just visibly seeing something kind of stay in the ground. Now, they don't have that moment in the movie, but in the epilogue, we have Ward Phillips' character uh, delivering some exposition, which is straight out of the short story by Lovecraft. And he says that he's never going to drink the water in that area. Now, I read an interview with the director of this film who said that he wants to do a trilogy of Lovecraftian films that are set in a sort of a post-apocalyptic region that are surrounding this area. Uh, So I'm wondering if this reservoir that has the remnants of this color in it is going to play a role in sort of like making people who live around there crazy in future movies. Man, one thing I wanted to mention about that epilogue scene, actually, we see Ward Phillips' character. Uh, Ward Phillips has sort of been making fun of Ezra, Tommy Chong's character, for the the entire movie. Uh, When Tommy Chong offers him a blunt, (laughs) Ward Phillips declines to to smoke with him. And at the end of the movie... (laughs) We see Ward Phillips' character <laughs> smoking a blunt while he's delivering this uh, exposition about oh. the reservoir, and it's just so bad. Like that one flew by me. Oh, I God. thought he was just smoking a cigarette. No, he's not. <laughs> and it's like can, 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 you know, you're, you have Lovecraft's words here. There's a uh, a great soundtrack, some beautiful cinematography, and we gotta throw this goofy shit into the like this goofy stoner movie shit into the last scene of the movie. Like, why? Makes you think, man. I don't, like, I I don't dislike this movie. I think it is a pretty good movie, but I would love to see some Lovecraftian movies that are more true to the spirit of his story of his stories that are more reminiscent of weird fiction like Edgar Allan Poe you know something more suggestive and less ridiculous this movie is a horror comedy but I don't don't know if Lovecraft had a funny bone in his body I don't don't know if the dude ever smiled in his lifetime no (laughs) so it something strange about that connection or like the way that's I guess been perceived in the wake of other movies and you know i think there's a broader problem whenever there is a horror movie that has kind of an obvious lovecraftian element at the end i find that critics and audiences really tend to pan it and and think that it jumps the shark to have like some sort of like alien or cosmic element i worry that uh filmmakers who want to adapt these stories or want to make something lovecraftian they think that the only way you can do this kind of story is to make it ridiculous, is to make it like a mockery of itself. And I don't think that's true. I think you can make a very serious movie that has cosmic elements to it. Uh, The Shape of Water has really Lovecraftian elements to it. 
I think Under the Skin has really cosmic elements to it. And neither of those movies are played for laughs. Like they're they're well made, uh, highbrow movies that deal with these these topics. So I would like to see Love Lovecraft adaptations that take that road instead of just doing the campy Stuart Gordon stuff. I guess even the movie like Annihilation, like it's similar to The Color Out of Space, uh, the story. It's got a lot of similarities, but it's a movie that stays serious and has like a very chilling ending. Like that ending sequence. Oh yeah, it's some real Kubrick shit. I would love to see something like that in the future. But I mean, meanwhile, I'm certainly glad Richard Stanley is making hopefully a full trilogy of movies. And I'm, I mean, I've enjoyed this one. I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully two more of them. I'm excited whenever a movie comes out that kind of raises the profile of Lovecraft or cosmic horror. And I think all it's going to result in is, you know, if a movie like this does well, maybe one day we will get Guillermo del Toro's mm. At the Mountains of Madness with Tom Cruise or whatever. <laughs> so I'm more than happy to go go see these, these uh, kind of campier takes on Lovecraft in the meantime. Yeah, I, I hope that maybe these movies do, do well enough that some studios will realize there's something here that people like and maybe they can give a put a little more money into something i mean i mean i'd certainly be a little bit worried that a a really expensive movie is gonna have more issues than not just to to pander to the the wide audience but I, i i'd still like to see a very high production value lovecraft movie down the road absolutely all right. Well, thank you for joining us on our first episode of From Beyond. We are planning to continue this podcast on a monthly basis. Um, as we go forward with this, we're going to dive deep into the the catalog of uh, little known Lovecraftian films from the past. Classics such as Dagon, From Beyond, Reanimator, Bride of Reanimator. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode and will join us in the future for more discussion of Lovecraft and Cosmic Horror. That's right. From Beyond is written by Mike Contos and Keith Warholic. Theme music by Mike Contos. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at From Beyond Pod. And our email address is frombeyondpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from our listeners, so feel free to send us questions, comments, and suggestions. If you'd like to help our podcast out, we'd appreciate a positive review on iTunes so that our podcast stays visible to people looking to find Lovecraft content. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>